I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. <laughs> Jess just writes things in the script. And of course, I open the script late because I'm a derelict. I read anything that's on the prompt. So I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy today. Take me to coffee. What is up? What is up? This is a mentorship podcast for the digital age. For the doers, the builders, the people who are making things from the ground up. Andrew and I know that the best part of a coffee date is getting personal with someone who's been down the road before you. So this podcast is your weekly chance to pick the brains of some super smart people. Pick, 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 pick. You're going to soak up a whole (laughs) lot of inspiration along the way. Do you think that I'll ever, ever be able to get through that without cracking up? I really don't think so, because it's going to only get more absurd, the things that you write in there. And you know that I'm going to say them, because I love to make you laugh. Oh, I love that you love to make me laugh. How's your day going, Andrew? Pretty good today, actually. I'm, you know, beautiful Chicago weather. It's Mm -hmm. summer. We've got some hazy days, blazing arrows outside. But uh, other than that, it's a beautiful day. I cannot complain at all. I love that song, by the way. Oh, me too. I'm a really, really big fan. That's so good. That's a mad villain, right? Yes. Uh, Mad villain. Also, maybe listens to our podcast. Oh, my God. Did you think mad villain would come on our podcast? I feel like we just need to approach. I mean, why not? Yeah, we'll tweet at him. Let's tweet at him. Is he on Twitter? Mad villain. (laughs) Is he on the Twitter? Hey, Did I say that? Is he on the Twitter? We should <laughs> tweet at him. Is he on the Twitter? He'll really. Oh, you come guys! Out I have. Us. I'll tell you who I really want to interview on this podcast is Daniel Levy from Schitt's Creek. Oh. It is a brilliant TV show. Uh, they've just released a bunch of episodes on Netflix, and it is one of my favorite television shows. It is so brilliant. It is so human. It is so real, and there's so much heart. It is hilarious. The brilliant I'm Catherine not- O'Hara and G- Eugene Levy star in this thing. And Daniel is Eugene's son, right? Daniel Daniel Levy's yes, Eugene's son. And there's Sarah Levy, which is the sister. She's also a part of the show as well. Uh, she doesn't actually play the sister on the show, but she is like one of the waitresses or something. She's equal. Uh, that whole family is just so ridiculously talented. My favorite thing about this podcast is like what we say in the intro that we went to the internet to find like all the most amazing people. It's like a hundred percent true. We pull people for this podcast, like folks who are on the internet who have amazing communities around like whatever they do super well so like we don't have a booker you know what i mean we don't have like press people we literally like dming people and being like hey that's what i'm saying it's like we're interested in something you're interested in something we go to get those people that's what we're doing for you right here it's pretty exciting and for us it's a little self-serving it's it's completely self-serving it's super (laughs) selfish i mean that's all we do because we're the worst people all we do is think about ourselves yeah we only think about ourselves that's why we started a mentorship podcast to make (laughs) ourselves feel better about ourselves not being good to other people. <laughs> it's our, we really, we're givers. Did you, um, I was going to ask you about this on the podcast. Did you mention, are you fostering something? I was trying to remember. Oh my God, yes. Oh yes. Okay, so I did. I just recently filled out an application for a company here in Chicago called Pause Chicago. Mm-hmm. Like pause, like my, oh, my little feet. Um, <laughs> Thanks for the demonstration. And you'll know what I was referring, yeah, but those for Patreon subscribers would be able to, you know, see my little padded feet and my, my dog ears. I digress. So I became a foster. I filled out an application to become a foster parent to a dog, uh, which you can do easily. Go to Paws Chicago or any of your, you know, adoption agencies or fostering agencies. Uh, everybody needs a good pet father, pet father, pet mother, pet person, like Everybody needs one. There's so many True. dogs out there. And if you want, you're missing something in your life and not that I'm missing anything, but I was feeling some anxiety recently. And I was like, man, I should be doing more. I want to do something. Yeah. I want to come home and I want to have like a little pal. You know, I'm working out of town right now and I have been for the last year and a half, but I don't have anything to come home to other than like my plant, Orion, if you can see that. 
<laughs> uh, my plant, Orion, or I just don't have anything to come home to that's like kind of, you know, living, like you need that energy around you. I do anyways. I, I like to have that energy around. So I'm going to, I'm going to become a foster parent. How long do you have to wait? To a dog. Like, like when do you, uh, I think it's like 24 to 48 hours or something Oh my gosh. They, before they approve you. Like you just have to be, uh, it's like any approval process, you know, it's like 24 to 48 hours or, and then maybe an interview, like a short interview. So they know you're not like a, you know, a pet killer or something. Have we talked about on this podcast, your actual pet and his name? Oh, I don't know if we've actually spoken of oh my God, he who I, shall not be named. He, this is my favorite, you guys, this is my favorite name of a dog ever. <laughs> All right, so we have a, uh, my wife's dream in life was to have a miniature long-haired dachshund named Thomas Booger. <laughs> so one day we get drunk at brunch in the West Village and we like, go to this, uh, I, I hate to say it out loud, we go to a bit of a puppy mill. Uh, I don't even want to say the name of the place. It was a bit of a puppy mill, but it was kind of on a lark. And so we go into this thing and they, all the dogs are, they're all, you know, wonderful, like little French bulldogs and all these teacup poodles and all these other things. And then all of a sudden up in this upper right-hand corner was this just like sad, beautiful, long little face with a dementedly long little body and the tiniest, like comically tiny little legs. <laughs> and it said, you know, the price on there and it had been reduced a couple of times. And I was like, that's our guy. That's our guy. So I go up there, we get him out, we play with him a little bit. We have a conversation between us. And this is when my, me and my girlfriend at the time, now wife, were together. And she was like, I don't, I don't know if we're ready for this. And I was like, this is the next step. We move in together. This is the next step. We get a dog. <laughs> so we get this dog. We pull him down. We play with him. We have a conversation. We actually end up taking him home. He starts vomiting in the car on the way home because he'd never been out of the shelter. He hadn't been out of the, the pet store. And he was just so fucking scared. Everything, like everything he did was so like, I'm tentative and shaky. And then two seconds into the house, like we put him into the apartment and he kind of sniffed around a little bit. He was the best dog ever. So I was like eating dinner that night and he was kind of like at my feet, like looking up at me. And I was like, you, sir, shall become a knight. <laughs> And so I actually, I physically with a butter knife knighted my dog on his tiny, tiny little shoulders. And he was just kept like looking at it with his long, stupid nose. So now from this day forth, you shall be named Sir Thomas Booger. Because you can't have, you, you have to knight a dog that's named Thomas Booger. You can't. For sure. that's, that's ridiculous. His name's Thomas Booger. Sir he had Thomas to be knighted. Booger. He is the Sir cutest Thomas dog. Booger. Oh my yeah, gosh. He really is. He's actually a piece of shit now. He's moved in with my in-laws because I had to leave town. Uh, and for anybody pet owner out there who's like, hey, listen, I can take care of a pet. Maybe your partner can't, right? Maybe you have to give it up to your partner who's like, I, I can't, I, I don't know. I've never had pets before. I, I can't deal with that pet. You're not I really- I town for three months. You're not selling your skills as a, a soon-to-be foster dog dad. <laughs> well, no, this, I, I'm getting to that point. I'm just like, I'm, you know, in my, in my own way, getting there. So- I go out of town for work for three months. My wife, my wife's like, I can't take care of this dog by myself. I'm working all the time. I'm whatever. I was like, okay, well, I'll bring him with me. She's like, the theater that I was working, I didn't allow pets. And I was like, ah, oh, this bullshit. So I send him over to my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law and this dog fall in love. They've never had a pet in their house before. This dog is everything to them. So much so that she still has the dog. From, the, <laughs> from five years ago, she still has the dog. I'm not kidding you that he tried to come back to my house and I was like, Hey, listen, you know, it's time for time for Thomas to come home. He needs to come back to the round table. He needs to come back. Right. And she's like, I don't know if I can. And she and literally came back to my house for three days. He was so depressed. My mother-in-law was so depressed that she's like, I don't, I don't know what's going on with me. I bring Thomas back to the house for like a little visit vacation thing. And immediately the sparks fly and you can see the whole thing. He's been there for five years now. Aww. He's not even really my dog anymore. Unfortunately, like I, I may have been like the, the proprietor of said dog or like have been the father. I took that dog away from the store, but he is definitely my mother-in-law's dog now. He and will. he runs that house. He is a little dictator. He runs that fucking house. 
He'll always be Sir Thomas Booger, though. He will always be Sir Thomas Booger. That is correct. Andrew, we've got such a good episode today. I'm super excited. And uh, before we get into who we are talking to, it it actually fits in really well. I want to remind everybody, if you're in the New York City, Tri-City area this fall uh, and you want to do some volunteering, we're looking for folks who are theater uh, performers or theater professionals, as well as people who are in tech careers to come volunteer with us at uh, the clubhouse down on the Lower East Side. We have an amazing program in partnership with uh, the clubhouse uh, at the Grand Street Settlement, where we bring theater folks in to maker spaces in underserved neighborhoods so that we uh, trade, do a little trade with them. We teach them these kids creative skills and they teach us how to use technology and we work together to build projects all year. So if you want to volunteer, we go twice a month for two hours each time. It's super easy. It's super fun. And you're going to have a huge impact on these amazing, amazing kids. So go to bit.ly slash BU bridge and sign up to come volunteer with us. Bit.ly. Who are we talking to today, Andrew? Uh, we are talking to Ami Dar and Abby Graf Subak, who uh, Ami Dar is the, actually the founder and executive director of Idealist. Idealist is an organization that he founded in 1996 with $3,500. Yeah, man. This, and they have become like an unbelievable organization. This conversation is was one of the most inspiring because I think it's pretty public. If you So idealist.org is this giant job board, which you'll hear more about for uh, nonprofit uh, jobs, volunteer opportunities, all that good stuff. And it's pretty easy to find information about that because it's huge. But getting to hear Ami's backstory, uh, you know, what what he was like as a kid and how the seed for this idea was planted. And then to chat with he and Abby as their current director of organizing to see how getting from point A to point B, like how they're growing and how it all fits together. It's it's by far been one of my favorite conversations so far. And also the future of the company, like uh, the future of the, the nonprofit. How does it like, how does it work with, um, you know, how the changing times of technology mm-hmm. and the organization of just, just how nonprofit is like viewed and how they are sustainable and their business model, which I found really interesting mm-hmm. actually Me too. that they have like kind of a normal business model, but they're a nonprofit, yep. which is really genius actually. Yeah. This conversation so, is going to be yeah. super great for anybody who like wants to make a difference and feels like they don't have the resources. Cause after you hear Ami's story, you will have no more excuses. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's so inspiring. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the blah, blah, blah. I don't have the this or that. And you're like, oh, well, this guy did it from absolutely nothing. 100%. He just had an idea. I mean. He had an idea. Not even an idea, a, a passion and a belief, right? Yeah. No, no, no. That's what I mean. It's like, and then you have somebody like Abby Graf Subak, who's his uh, organiz- <laughs> organizing director. And she's like one of the most passionate people I've ever, ever met. Like she is like legitimately hard on her sleeve. Like she is just, I am 100% about people, humanity. I love life and I want to like, I want everybody to be good to each other. And this, that passion fills this whole organization. It's really beautiful. Yeah. They're both very, very good at what they do. So you'll listen to this episode. And then afterwards, if you want, don't forget to head over to Twitter and follow us at TM2C podcast. And you can leave a question for our upcoming guests, or you can even go back and leave a question for Abby and Ami and we'll get it answered for you. I think that's enough from us, right? Let's get to the episode. Do a lot of embarrassing things because now we're recording. <laughs> like telling us your whole backstory, your whole life story. But truly, yeah, tell tell us a little bit about each of you guys because uh, just in case people listening don't know. Mommy, why don't you go first? Yeah, I mean, you're the founder of The Idealist. So why don't you tell us about it? 
Tell us about how you got there. Uh, my name is Ami, and uh, I'm old, so that would be a long story. But basically, <laughs> the short version is that I was born in Israel, then I grew up in Mexico as a kid. And ever since I was a kid, I guess I was sort of a little social justice freak. Stuff started bothering me when I was like seven or eight years old. I didn't understand why other kids in the street were begging and why there was like obvious sort of injustice in the world. And so I started to think what I could do about it. And, you know, when you're 10 years old, people don't really take you seriously when you want to go to the mountains and start a revolution. So I had to wait. <laughs> Uh, and then basically, uh, when I was older, went backpacking in South America for a while, for a couple of years on my own when I was 23, 24, and started meeting lots of people that wanted to do something to make things better around them. But this was pre-web. This was the mid 80s. Uh, there was really no way. There was no way to find anything. So I thought there should be a way. So then I started doing all kinds of odd jobs. Never went to college, but I was a waiter. I was a translator. Joined a computer software company that French started. And then when the web was invented, the moment it was invented, I was like, oh, my God, this thing was invented just for me. <laughs> I've been waiting for this forever. And that led to launching Idealist in 1995, which is a long time ago for some people now. Um, and then it's been sort of uh, growing ever since. But the, the original idea was how can we get more good people to do good things or how can we make it easier for more good people to do good things and connect with opportunities to do so with each other. I desperately want a T-shirt that says social justice freak. Okay. That's so good. <laughs> That's right, yes. For kids, though, for kids, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Abby? Um, well, I feel like I was going to say Ami and I are on similar tracks, but also very different tracks. And then we just crossed paths a year and a half ago. Um, for me, I think I've always been really interested in engaging the world and wanting more people to be engaged in the world. I didn't always have the language to explain that. I was you know, a Girl Scout when I was younger and really wanted to participate and volunteer and do everything I could do. I wanted more people to be involved with us. Um, I was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the 1990 Earth Day, which would have been the 20th anniversary. And the environment was one of my big issues. And I was in high school and somehow, which I can't remember, got connected with the committee that was organizing the Pittsburgh Earth Day. But basically, I ended up organizing all the volunteers for the Pittsburgh Earth Day. I just felt like there should be more people involved. And here's how we were going to do outreach. The biggest thing I remember from that is um, working with adults, volunteer adults for the first time and coming home and telling my dad, dad, the meeting was like three hours. But what we get, to, what it took us to get done in three hours, we usually get done in like 20 minutes in our student council meetings because we had to have everything packed into that 20 minute period, or maybe it was a 40 minute period or 38 and a half minutes. <laughs> so for me, then after then you know, I went into college, um, I loved international issues. I loved different types of people in the U.S. and internationally and was really um, came out of college ready to really get out of academia and get into the trenches and wanted to make a difference. So my career trajectory can seem different to some people. I started out in advocacy and really fighting around and arguing and advocating for particular issues and then ended up finding my second job out of college through idealist.org. So that in not 95, but not too long after that. So I was in the first couple waves. Um, with an organization called Public Conversations Project. And I think the thing for me that's so different between them is in advocacy, you're really making things black and white and asking people to choose which side of the line they're on. And in Public Conversations Project, we were really exploring all the corners of gray. Nothing was black and white. We're all just human beings trying to figure out what is the right answer in this world where there are no right answers officially. So for me, the common thread, and then my career continued working with arts organizations 
organizations, working with other advocacy organizations, working as a consultant, um, founding an arts group in Brooklyn, and always looking for ways that people can get engaged in the world and people can make their voices heard. So I think that's where advocacy in the beginning, I wanted more and more people to sign petitions and call their elected officials and make their voices heard. And then Public Conversations Project, I wanted more people to connect with each other and talk about their opinions. And um, that's been my trajectory that I think has really brought me right here. And I really love what we're doing at Idealist now as far as helping people connect with each other and find their passions and what they want to make the world look like. I think it's finding the voice and also feeling empowered to change the world and make the world what you think it should look like. And I think if more people did that, we would have a better world. I love imagining that you two were like magnets on either side of the world. Do you know what I mean? That just kept drifting together over time. That's how I'm imagining it in my head. We crossed paths several times in New York City before we ended up working together. How so? A couple different nonprofit events where we were. Ami was a speaker at one, and then I introduced myself to him after that. So we probably had coffee sometime after that. More recently then, I was working on a project and needed a couple external judges, consultants, um, and invited Ami to be one of those judges, because what Mm. would be better than the executive director and founder of Idealist around uh, nonprofit issues and making a difference. So then we had connected there, and then that was the last time before we started working together on this. Ami, were there other people around when you were a kid like you? Like, did you find any of your people that early on? No one is like me. No, I, 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 um, no, I think, I think I was a little bit of a weird kid. I was in my own world. I think a lot of the time, certainly other kids were, you know, good kids, just normal kids. They weren't concerned with, you know, revolution and world peace and stuff. And so in that sense, um, I think I was a little bit of a freak, but that's okay. No, nobody made me feel bad about it. Oh, that's fantastic to have a so so you found a little bit of that community where um, you were able to live your life. There was no judgment. There was nothing like that. And um, did that influence where you went in life uh, with the no judgment thing? And you were able to kind of flourish in that, or what? I'm not sure anybody cared enough to. to I mean, basically, also, I wasn't exactly you know uh, as a kid, I wasn't talking about it that much. I cared about the things I cared about, and then you know, I was also participating in school stuff, um, not liking it much, but participating. Mm-hmm. And so then, yeah, my, my parents were relatively okay with it. I think they, um, you know, I was reading all these crazy books when I was 12, 13, 14. I mean, I was reading these like very, you know, adult books when I was 13, 14, and they never made me feel weird about that. So that was... And what were what were some of the books that you that you had read uh, that informed you? Oh, my God. I remember this very specific moment when I was 12. I think I was in sixth grade. We're spending six months. My dad was teaching in Texas, so we're spending six months in Austin, and I was in this public school in Texas. Um, yeah, it was sixth grade. And I was reading this, this book that is literally about 1,200 pages long. It's like, it, it's almost as thick as it is long basically i mean as it right. is wide yeah it's called the rise and fall of the third wife it's the the, the history of the whole of rise sure. and fall of of yep but this guy william l Shearer was his name yep. and i was 12 years old and i was reading this book and i remember the english teacher walking by one day and looking at my desk and seeing that thing and i remember him almost flipping i don't understand why i thought i was a normal one and then you know this was the mid 70s early 70s the first feminist books were coming out and my mom was getting some of them. So like Jermaine Greer. I remember there was a woman uh, that wrote this book. Her name, I think, was Brown. She wrote this book called Men, Women, and Rape, 1974 or something. <laughs> like I, read that. I mean, completely uh, applicable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The Gulag Archipelago is also Nietzsche. And again, I must have been 13, 14 Nietzsche years old. Nietzsche at 13. I mean, just a little, just yeah. a little light reading. Just some light reading. And yeah, exactly. You know, whatever. Just, just some fun. So anyway, so yeah. I started reading the paper when I was like eight or nine. And uh, yeah, just, just politics junkie kind of thing. Yeah. But my parents never, they, they were fine with 
with it. So that was fine. That was okay. I wonder if that's a commonality between a certain type of person. Because I too, I like I was reading Ryan White's autobiography in fourth grade, you know, the kid who died of AIDS really early on. And my reading teacher, she was really old, but she was having a panic attack over it. You know what I mean? And I was like, but what? This is an interesting book and it means something. I wonder if that's a thing. Reading. I always wonder if reading is a commonality. Oh, I think I think reading. I don't know. I can't judge anymore what is happening with kids now. You know, I have a I have a fourteen year old at home, mm. and uh, you know the the phone thing. And I think you know Abby has two teenagers. You know, I I was the kind of kid that would lie on my bed in the afternoon or in the weekend, and I could read you know five or six or seven hours in a row without mm-hmm. going to like just getting to the, up to go to the bathroom when I absolutely had to. I mean, is there any kid right now who can read for six hours without being tempted to look at her phone even once? I mean, do kids do that? I don't know. I, re- I literally don't know. It's not a doubt. I just literally don't know. What do you think, Abby? Kids, there are yeah, kids I, who read six or seven hours without tempting to look at the screen. I don't think so. I think there's a lot of screen going on now. You know, I spent the weekend with several teenagers. I think there's some reading going on. Yep. Not the same way we did. Not like, oh, a rainy day. What do you do? You pick up a book and read. Although I will say that weekend that I spent with teenagers, we did discuss a couple books that they were reading and they thought were interesting. So that was hmm. promising. What were the topics of the books? Was it kind of YA stuff or was it um, was it well, more no, interesting? Are, was um, it 16 and 17 year olds? So they're young adults. They're reading good stuff. So uh, my daughter was reading the Poisonwood Bible, which I think is yeah. an amazing book by Barbara Kingsolver. One of the other young women there was reading something that her father had given her called Oh my God, I'm going to get it wrong, but is it possibly called The Frozen Rabbi? <laughs> I don't know that one. <laughs> Rabbi that was like a, in the that's title, a really cool and title, actually. It's about some like, you know, hundreds of years ago, Rabbi who gets frozen and then thawed out. So it's comical, but also seemed to have a pretty poignant message to it, also. And I forget, I feel like there was a third book we were talking and we were talking about whether you should watch the movie before you read books and things like that, too. So I don't know. Part of me wants to have hope for these kids, but part of me feels like it's such a different experience. You know, a couple summers ago, there was um, one of those humor columns in The New Yorker about before the Internet. And it was maybe two summers ago. And it was basically, you know, just that one page column that says, like, I wake up and I look out the window for five minutes and then I get bored and I go downstairs and talk to the neighbor and the neighbor's watching the bridge over the river Kwai. So I join in that. But then you realize the neighbor's lonely and you have to talk to him forever. You know, and it was just like this on and on. And then I turn myself into an FBI agent and laminate and decide I'm going to laminate my badge so it looks real. And I, I thought it was hilarious. And I read it to my kids and they just looked at me blankly like, that doesn't sound very fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, that's kind of that's really interesting too. Is that I think the imagination is kind of gone because there's so much content out there. You, we don't, kids don't have imagination anymore. There's no creativity in the imaginative world, and I think that's where we find a lot of our uh, like school teachers are having trouble teaching because of kids don't know how to like have free time. They don't know what to right. do in that free time. And it's uh, that's interesting to me. Yeah, on the same is like um, how to be bored, right? I think that the kids kind of panic when they're bored. And right. if I say we're in the car for a two-hour drive, you can't use your phone. They're like, well, why not? What would I do instead? It's like, I don't know. We can listen to the radio together. We can talk. You can look out the window and know where we are because there's some beautiful scenery going by. But it's such a foreign concept to like, why would I not just be on my phone because this is dead time? Or I would be bored. So that whole like how to entertain yourself through boredom question I I worry about also. Uh, Speaking of travel, I wanted to circle back to Ami. You had said that you traveled um, a lot as a youth from Jerusalem to Mexico to Texas uh, and into the States. Do you think that your world opened up quite a bit 
being forced to travel around, or not forced to travel around, but your parents, I assume, moved and you moved with them. And then we're exposed to so many different cultures and so many different things. Do you think that also informs some of your um, kind of relentless mindset of like, I want to, I want to seek out more things. I want to know more about the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, when I, when I was seven, we moved to Mexico and spent eight years there. And they sent me to this um, British English school, which is where my, my English is from. And then it was Spanish in the street, English in school, Hebrew at home. It's interesting. Now, you know, I'm older. And if I look back, I can't really imagine who I would be today if they had never left Israel. Mm. So, you know, I have, I know people my age, you know, in Israel, of course, who I grew up with later, uh, high school, also in the army and stuff. And I see them and I was like, oh, so I'd have your funny accent. You know, I have a funny accent already, but I'd have an even funnier accent if I would speak like you or, yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine literally who I would be if they hadn't taken me out for, you know, nine years of my, of my childhood and, and, and adolescence. Um, so yes, you know, the world opens up. Um, I went to the school in Mexico where I think that, you know, there were 20 kids in my class and maybe from 14 countries and wow. that was just normal. Yeah. That was just, just the, the normalcy of right? this international school where, where everyone is different and you just accept that and, and you're just, everyone is a minority, right? So that, that was sort of interesting. So yeah, I can't, I can't really imagine, um, anything else. And I, I recommend it. I mean, that's, that's totally, I think that's great. I love that. Yeah. That's sort of the flip side to what's really amazing about the phones and stuff, or at least from my perspective, is that access to information and experiences and perspectives like where Andrew and I, we grew up in Missouri and Arkansas, right? Middle uh-huh. of the country in the United States. And I don't know about you, Andrew, but I just didn't have that till I moved to New York. I just didn't have any access to anything like that. And that's the thing I love a little bit, even though I'm a, obviously a crazy reader. This is my bookshelf at my house, but I love that we have access to so much information. And if I was a kid and had that, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, right? So not so, I mean, not so different from Missouri and Arkansas Mm -hmm. as far as having access to different types of people, which is where I do think like the travel, like I'm curious, do you guys feel like you knew there was a whole nother world out there? I feel like I grew up without seeing it, but I did know it was out there and couldn't wait to explore it a little more. Oh, see myself, my family, we drove everywhere. I never like, I wasn't on a plane. We were dirt poor. So I was, I never on an airplane until I was like 24 years old. I'd never seen New York City. I'd never seen the ocean. You know, I was, it was all those things for late in life for me. So I, I was imagining what they were. We traveled a lot by car. So you had to fill a lot of time, eight, 10 hours at a stretch of like sitting in the car playing with the sister or trying to figure out, you know, like how many license plates you could count or where are these different states and things like that. Looking at a map, actually looking at a physical map, yep. thumbing through the Rand McNally being like, oh, these are amazing places. I want to go there someday. Circle it on the map and go, I'm going to be there someday. Mm. And it like that, that was interesting to me. And it promoted a level of creativity and wonder in me that I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to travel to all these places. I can do it. I can just drive there. It may take a little time, but what's time? And now time is like, everybody's like, oh my God, I don't have time. I don't have time. I can't do this. I go, but you got time. You got tons of time. But do you think if you were driving everywhere, you were being exposed? Because I do think like just leaving your hometown, maybe you start to see that there are other perspectives and that maybe those people with a slightly different perspective aren't all bad. Exactly. (laughs) Ami, what were you going to say? No, by the way, I think that's a classic example of how, you know, there's, there's good and bad and everything and sort of side effects of everything. I think that I love Google Maps for all kinds of reasons. Mm. I love, you know, having it on my phone. I just, it's useful. Um, But the fact that my kid, for example, I don't think she's ever actually seen an atlas. You know, you guys have an Mm. atlas at home when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, those big, like a Britannica, right? Like like basically three feet by two feet kind of thing, right? You open it and there's something about the 
depth of it, right? There's something about seeing Iceland or seeing mm. Norway, you know, three feet tall, right? And seeing the fjords and just imagining yourself in it in a way that you can't really imagine yourself in your phone. I mean, the phone doesn't have... It's cute. It's useful. You can find your way. But there's no majesty to me in the maps of the phone. Oh, what a great word. Right? Yeah, the there's no perspective there's, or scope. Yeah, there's no know? perspective. Yeah. There's no scope. There's no... I had a friend once who told me that, you know, that, that when his family, when they were younger, once they took this, this ship that used to go from London to, I think, the Queen Elizabeth or something, you could still take a ship across the ocean. And, you know, it mm-hmm. took a week. And his dad did it because he really, once in his life, he said, he wanted to feel what the real distance is between London and New York. You know, that the, ah. the, the cheating that we do in the airplane, that it only takes six hours. There's something about actually, you know, doing it at a human pace and feeling how big it is, right? Like riding a bike across this country, for example. Right. And just like, okay, it's really that big. It doesn't actually take five hours to get through. And I think with atlases, there was something about you'd open this thing and, and there was a depth there. And yeah, I think in majesty, it's like, oh, you know, the world is this big, awesome place that I want to explore. And I don't think that a phone or even a computer screen can give you that sense. It's just literally too small. You don't you don't get that feeling. Also, the touching of the paper, the the running your your hands over, you know, the the mountain the, ranges, and uh, it's just my, different. My my grandmother had a globe in her house, one of the ones that yep. spun, you know, mm-hmm. and it literally had had like raised areas where there were mountain ranges and bumps and things. And I was like, just enamored with it. It was almost like a braille or something to me, where I was like, this is amazing, you know, just one of those <laughs> things where you go. This is what this is like in that part of the world or that part of the country. You know, it's just, it's unbelievable. And it made me more curious. Yep. I was, uh, I really wanted to find out what that was about. It made me want to wander over there and see what that was. So speaking of the world, I know we got questions from a lot of folks for you guys about all of the work you're doing, which will let us talk about it. So let's, uh, let's go to the first question. How do nonprofits get access to the resources that for-profits have in terms of knowledge, staff, funding, etc.? This is such a good question for you guys since Idealist started with so comparatively so little. Nothing, essentially. That's true. So how do nonprofits get access to resources? Ah, my God, I guess some do and some don't. I, in many ways, was lucky that when we started... I, I was working for a friend of mine and had a software company. And so for several years, he basically supported and let me do both. I was, I was running his software company in one side of the office and he was paying me for that. And on the other side of the office, there were people working for Idealist. And so I had to find a way of, of funding their salaries, only two people at first, but I did not have to worry about rent, computers, power, IT support. That all came from the company. And by the way, that's become sort of a little pet thing of mine. I think that every company in the world with more than X employees could be incubating a nonprofit. You know how when you when you work for a company that has, you know, 30, 50, 100, 200 employees, what's two more desks, right? right? You don't even actually feel it. I mean, let's be honest. You have two more desks in the corner. Two young people are working there. It doesn't matter, basically. And they're using the photocopier. So what? So I think it varies. You know, fundraising is always a pain. I was terrible at it. So I'm very glad that we developed an earned income model. But it's tough. It's tough because you don't necessarily have something to sell, right? I think the the questioner was making the comparison to the corporate world. The idea of, the, of a company is that you have something to sell that some people want enough to pay for. Otherwise, you don't have a company, mm-hmm. right? That's the definition of a company, right? That lasts over time. You're producing something that someone wants to pay for. But when you're working to, you know, feed kids or save whales or what are you producing that you can actually sell? And so you have to figure that out. It's a bit more subtle, I think. It's a bit more complicated than a product. In the end, I think you're selling a story, basically, in many cases, really. You're selling hope. It's more complicated. But I don't know, Abby, what if you want to add to that? 
not sure what else we can say that, that is generically applicable. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a good question. It's the eternal question, right? So it does come down to having good communications, which is what's the story. Um, I think it comes down to fundraising or earned income or someone having funds, um, which unfortunately I see a lot of great ideas stopped by not having the money to make them happen. I do. The thing that was coming up to me in the question, though, is I do think there's a certain lag between um, innovations that corporations are making that could benefit the nonprofit sector and the social impact sector, certainly around use of technology these days, but even you know, in different human resources and staff management technology, you know, ideas and approaches 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that there was a lag behind. And then websites, there was a lag before nonprofits had websites or then really understood how they could be used. Now, like what are Instagram and Facebook doing with artificial intelligence and huge, huge vats of data that imagine if we were using all that and applying all that to solve social problems rather than to sell you those linen pants or the next widget. So uh, it does frustrate me. And I do wish there were corporations. And, you know, again, I'm the eternal optimist. So I always hope there's something like Ami saying, what if a corporation incubated a nonprofit and shared everything that they knew and were doing and that nonprofit could learn from it, whether it's using their photocopier or their internet or their plan for weekly check-ins with their staff, all these things that they could learn and not have to recreate from scratch. I mean, be crafty, right? Here, just heard that in several different ways. One, if you know you need things to make your vision happen and you can't get them the traditional way, think outside the box and be relentless, to use Andrew's word from earlier, about your pursuit Mm -hmm. of making that thing. Uh, And I think one of the things that I notice is really interesting is when um, it is that be relentless and it's also not taking any of it personally. So who can Mm. persevere through that, I think, are the people who are truly focused on their mission and wanting to give back and that it's not, I mean, there's a couple layers that are going in my mind, but that's what you're focusing on. So if you're asking for money, you're not asking people to give you personally in, in your heart and soul. The words might be the same, but you're not asking people to give you money. You're asking them to give money to the project you're working on, to the impact that you want to have. And I think that's really important also. So if you guys have spoken about um, selling a story and selling hope, I'm interested in in that. Like, what are some of the ways that you guys have gone about actually selling something that is, I mean, ultimately intangible? You know what I mean? You can see hope on someone's face. You can live, you can live mm-hmm. for that. It's tangible to me because I can express it in feeling and emotion. But as far as a business model, how, how, how have you found difficulties or is it been tough to broach that subject with people that you're trying to get to come on and fund you guys in, in, in the nonprofit kind of way? Well, to clarify, I mean, right now we don't really sell. I mean, Idealist, again, as I said earlier, we very early on have developed a model that would basically fund the work without spending on fundraising. There were a couple of obstacles along the way at the beginning. You know, Idealist deals with every issue. At the beginning, I was naive enough to think that that would mean that every funder would be interested. And the, of course, the sad truth is that no funder is interested. Mm. When you want to do even just two things, right. they send right. you to the other one. If you want to do you know, uh, youth and senior collaboration, they'll send you to the other one. They don't want to, you know, whatever. <laughs> anyway, uh, that was right. one thing. We did not really know anyone. It really annoyingly has to do with who you know. And uh, we were asking money for technology when, when this was way, way early. They didn't even have websites yet, the funders. And so they, they didn't understand what we were doing. So we found this model. We were, we're essentially 100% dependent on, um, on on earned income, which is an organization's post jobs on idealist and pay us a small amount of money to post a job. 
and that keeps us going. So we haven't really fundraised for a while now. And uh, so I say, you know, sell hope. I think many organizations are in the in the quote unquote business of making you feel good about you know, making a better environment or advocating for a certain class of people, even though you might not be that specific uh, person. So they're not selling you a tangible thing you get in the mail or product that you buy in the store. They're selling you um, a feeling and you're, you're essentially buying into feeling better about the world, feeling better about yourself, who you are as a person. I am the kind of person that gives to, mm. etc., And that makes you feel good about yourself. So I think that's really what it's about. We, in, you know, in this new work that we're doing with Idealist Days, with all the stuff that we're doing now, Certainly trying to make people feel certain feelings that will then get them to take action. And you can do that, you know, through essentially words and images really is all we have right, right now. Yeah. Yes, video sound. But really, you're trying to get to someone's heart remotely and what will actually cause that to happen. And just to swing back to like the earlier, the funding model and all, I, my favorite quality in a human being is a person who, and everyone on this you know, podcast episode is like this, a person who knows it's possible, period. The path might not always be clear, but like I try. I feel empathy there that like we we agree. Yeah. And just and just uh, you were like, I will make this happen. I don't care if you don't understand a website. I don't care if I can't get funders. You know what I mean? And I feel like I I don't know. Do you guys speak to people a lot about this? Like people come to me and say, Oh, but I can't do it, and this isn't lined up. And I'm like, No, no, no. You just have to keep thinking and keep looking and keep listening. You can. You absolutely can do it. Off my soapbox. Bye. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, Abby, if you want to jump into that. I, I totally agree with you, Jess. I think that that's what we're talking about, people believing that they can do it and wanting to do it. And I think that, you know, we and I certainly believe that every person out there, even the people that you might look at and not think are necessarily prone to this. I think every person has it in them to hope for a better world, to want a better world, to see the problems that are in the world, potentially to have ideas about how to fix them. And if we can just help more people tap into those passions and motivations that I believe every person has inside them, they will start to contribute, start to impact the world in different ways. And for some people, that might be really small actions. It might be introducing themselves to their next door neighbor they've never talked to, or some small helping out a neighbor, but that's still helping connect and make the world a better place. Or for some people who have had big visions of nonprofits that are going to work with a specific interest group or a specific group in need, but how can they get over that hump of seeing it to make it happen? And it's hard, right? It's hard as humans. Mm -hmm. you're saying that We see lots of challenges. And how can you say see the challenges just as that, as challenges that we're going to figure out? I think that is a brilliant segue into our second question. <laughs> oh, we got to get that in there a few times. Somebody, Phone's ringing. Gonna get that. Technology has made it easier to create content. The market is increasingly saturated, which has made it harder for indie filmmakers' work to be seen and be profitable. As an organizer, what advice can you offer filmmakers who want to rally people around a great piece of art? <laughs> and go. Yeah, no, and <laughs> no, I'm, I'm smiling because this is the like Abby was saying the eternal question of fundraising, right? The eternal challenge of being of being noticed. Yeah, so a tree falls in this. I mean, mm -hmm. absolutely. You know, how do you launch a new website these days? How do you launch a new podcast? Right? I mean, how many podcasts are there? I don't know, millions. Oh, so many. At, at least. <laughs> 
Yeah. Right. And the mm-hmm. tail is so, these tails tend to be so extreme, right? So you'll have mm-hmm. 50 podcasts that get millions of followers and then very soon it drops off to um, not, not even the podcaster's mom wants to listen to the whole thing, right? So <laughs> you, you, you're in that thing. It's like, you know, uh, you challenge number one, on you get. <laughs> no, it's interesting. You know, as a podcaster, these things, by the way, are, I think are very real, right? Someone's going to start a podcast, you're going to make a film. Can you get at least one family member to watch all the way through? And it, it's interesting because I think what happens with these things sometimes that we all humans i think have the ability to fool themselves you know one way that, that we talk about it here is um how many people that work for nonprofits ever go to the blog of another nonprofit to just read it for fun right mm. no one does no one reads other people's stuff essentially unless you're like doing a competitive analysis or something Right. right. You don't go for fun. And you, you, if you work for the ACLU, you don't go and read Greenpeace just for fun in the <laughs> evening before going to bed. Now, the interesting thing is, if that's true, if you don't do that, why do you expect anyone to read your stuff? Right. If you never read anyone else's, if you're if you're writers, I mean, why, why do we read The New Yorker, for example? Because the writers are awesome. Now, if your stuff is not written that way, why would anyone actually read it? Mm. And so I think that Obviously, the first answer here is you have to produce quality stuff, right? Now, that, annoyingly, quality doesn't guarantee success. And then, of course, then quality also is tricky these days. What does quality mean, right? I mean, mm-hmm. is Craigslist a good-looking site? I don't think so. Does LinkedIn beautiful? No. What is even quality? It has to be good enough for some people, good enough for your intended audience, which is why I laughed at the beginning. You know, at least would your mom at least read it? You know, would your friends honestly want to hear this if the people who love you are not interested why would the people who don't love you be interested right so i guess it's an interesting barometer yeah yeah i mean there's a test there i think that's important you know at the, at the same time just to say we have live in this culture where word of mouth is so preponderant and it's free right if you like something you'll tell other people about it it doesn't cost you anything mm-hmm. so if you can tell if you can get some people to feel passionately about what you do they will tell other people and that's, I think Abby has, has heard me say this word before about, about deserving something. Like if you deserve to be heard, some people will hear you. If you don't deserve it, it doesn't matter what you do, how much you try. You just haven't earned it yet, basically. I think you have to earn, you have to deserve having other people want to listen to you or to hear you. It is interesting, like you said, with that sort of like saturation of content, the sort of mirror of grassroots organizing that's starting to happen. Because um, mm-hmm. even with, with podcasts specifically, I just happened to know this because I was doing a deck the other day for it. But 43% of podcasts are discovered through recommendation on social media. And yep. only 3% are listened to because it was on one of iTunes lists, which is kind of sold in articles as like the end all be all God of making your podcast successful is get right, get on the new and noteworthy. But truly the the statistics suggest that it's really grassroots organizing around your piece of deserving content. Yep. And I would add even adopting that technology. I think I knew people were talking about pad- podcasts for a couple of years till somebody said, no, this is the one that you really have to listen to. And I do think it was before Serial, but it might have been Serial. Oh, really- mine was absolutely Serial. I was like, oh, no, it's going to be Serial. That's, that's mine. That's mine. <laughs> got me into the other thing I was going to say, um, I am, again, I keep saying ahead of time that I'm an internal optimist, but I do believe that if you try to game the system too much by giving people the content they want, I 
I'm opposed to that. I don't think that works. Mm. Not in this field, not in this, like, what are you passionate about way? And I do believe, and I've seen some of the most successful ones where people, an individual or a group of people really follow their own heart. They create content that they would want to consume themselves, that they wish was out there in a way, creating it for yourself, not in a belly button gazing, you're the only one listening to it way, but in a, what's the content that I would want that I'm not finding and that I'm passionate about creating. And I've seen that with people creating, starting up organizations, whether we're not going to call that content or not. I've seen that with people creating blogs and websites that have really taken off. Um, you know, if you, and if you think of some of the blogs that are so popular that did start as someone's just personal diary or noting of their trip through fighting cancer or their trip through having small children or as they traveled the world or as they cooked everything in the joy of cooking, you know, that then that turns into a really big thing. So I do think there's a role for following your passion here. Agreed. I think there's also that relatability. I mean, like the, the, the cancer blog or something like that, you know, a lot of people have cancer. A lot of people go through the same thing. They have the same kind of story and you want to be, again, sympathetic or empathetic to something like that. And you're like, oh my God, there's somebody out there just like me. You know, we keep talking around this thing, but I think it's about, you know, we do, we interview a lot of artists. We have a lot of friends who are artists. I'm an artist. We're all artists in some way, but you live your truth. I mean, that's an acting phrase, but like, I am passionate about one thing. I believe it honestly, and I believe that I will follow it relentlessly. And then that becomes inspiring to other people. And I think that's kind of what we're getting around here is it's the inspiration and it has to be an honest, truthful inspiration to let you be able to fully fulfill the idea yeah. for other people. Yeah. So in some ways, I think it's like when people start it thinking they're only creating it for themselves, they're really tapped into their, what I was saying, passion what, mm. or their heartfelt or what they want. And they're also not trying to shape it and package it for an audience. And right. I do think what we need in this world now is more authenticity and more vulnerability and more sharing. And that those are the ones, because they're genuine, really take off and connect people heart to heart. That's right. Ah, these questions are so good. Let's do another one. Nonprofits tap into the volunteer economy effectively. Uh, but you go first this time. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot. Well, I think when I think of volunteer economy, and maybe there is more of a technical term that we can get into, but I just think of volunteers. I think of people giving services uncompensated, unpaid. I mean, there's a couple ideas that go through my mind right now. How to do it effectively is a little trickier. But the first thing that goes through my mind is that there's a lot of people who want to give back and don't know how and don't know where to start and don't know where to make those matches. So on that hand, you do have a pool of people who really want to volunteer. And on the other hand, I do think you have organizations that could use help. But, you know, within nonprofits, often it feels like, and people say this often, it feels like more work to have volunteers rather Mm. than more work rather than help. So I think there are some organizations that are approaching it creatively. Certainly Idealist has a matchmaking function for volunteering options. I think that the nonprofit sector needs to explore different ways of bringing people on and helping people contribute and how to tap into people who have a particular way they want to contribute. I all I, I put it on both both ends because then I think the volunteers should feel more confidence in their ability to offer something. So I think what makes it hard for nonprofits to tap into volunteers is the volunteers being waiting for guidance, waiting to be told what mm. to do, where if you came in and said, I'm going to start a podcast for your issue and here's all the way I'm going to do it. Obviously, it's a dance. You want to balance out. You want it to, to relate. You want the nonprofit to get something out of it. But again, I think it's um, tapping into what you're passionate about and what you're able to contribute. And if you as a volunteer see a way that you could help that nonprofit 
you probably can. Yeah, I don't really have much to say about that. That was pretty amazing. <laughs> Ami? No, I'm good. I mean, yeah, yeah, this that's a great summary. <laughs> awesome. I've done a lot of work um, on both ends of being a volunteer and also running whole projects and whole organizations based on volunteers. So, you know, it's just like, how do you sell hope? How do you sell a vision for the future? And I think we fall into that trap of selling, even using that word, right, even if we don't right. mean an exchange of money, we're falling into some commercial consumer product consumption idea where really it's like, what can you contribute? What do you want to do? is a different kind of question. And what do, I mean, how do we measure success in our country? We measure it by our GNP. And how do we measure success in our lives? You have to make the biggest salary possible. And if you don't, you have to really like explain it when you're at home at Thanksgiving, why you're not making the biggest salary possible. And I think that that all comes back to a shift in being confident in our role and our ability to contribute and our right to contribute and probably our responsibility to contribute. Do you think that's a narrative change that we as a, like a, a society ultimately are kind of looking for? I mean, especially in the volunteer world, uh, the narrative change of I'm giving my time, I'm donating something, I'm not trying to get something back. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, I don't want to, I'm not trying to sell you something. I'm volunteering. I'm actually giving you my time which I think is a, narr- a complete narrative change Com- to what you were saying is that in our capitalistic society, it is about, I'm giving you something, you give me something back. It's that give, that give and the take, right? Right. So, and a thing, a product usually. I mean, exactly, I'm getting something <laughs> tangible back as opposed to, I am giving you my time. I'm giving you the feeling of something great by spending time with you or hope or whatever, teaching you a skill that I have that I'm going to give to you and be a mentor to a mentee in that kind of maybe relationship. I think that, you're that right world. that it's a narrative, a narrative change. And I do think that um, in nonprofits, you, we can get caught up in feeling guilty about asking people to give their time freely. Now, I can go on another track, which is like people should be paid for the work that they're doing. You know, that's one argument. But I also think we shouldn't necessarily feel guilty. People who want to show up, who want to contribute something, I don't have a problem taking their very professional skills and letting them put them to use in a way that feels meaningful and is giving back to the world. So sometimes I've been in nonprofits where our question is like, well, what do they get out of it if we're asking them to do all this stuff for us? But what they're getting out of it is that sense of meaning in their life and their connections to other people and a great experience. And we don't have to necessarily have them get anything more out of it. Now you have to test that and see if people are willing to do it. And if that sense of community and sense of meaning actually satisfies them and is actually there. But I think that um, we can get too caught up in that transactional exchange as opposed to, hey, you're here because you want to give back. To tie back to our fundraising, I did do a lot of fundraising and love fundraising. And there's a whole thing in fundraising that's like, as a fundraiser, you shouldn't feel guilty for taking people's money. Like you're really giving them an opportunity to make a difference. And people can roll their eyes and laugh when I say that. But like, if you truly believe that, which I do, then I'm not taking their money away from them. And there, I had a, you know, around a $35 contribution, total breakthrough in my thinking around fundraising in 1994. <laughs> I walked away from someone who had convinced me they couldn't afford $35 and then was just like, but wait a minute, they have a car, which didn't cost $35 to fill up the tank. But 
maybe they would have filled it up three times then. They had a pair of jeans that definitely cost at least $35. So, so it's all just a matter of choices. So they're making a choice of where they're putting their money. And can I offer them that choice? I think it's the same thing with their time and where they're putting their time. And I'm not going to feel guilty for asking them to spend time because if they don't want to spend it, they won't spend it. And if they do, I'm going to give them an opportunity to really make a difference. But I think that's part of it too, is that, that as a human being, like giving something or being, you know, I mean, like uh, teaching a child or something like that, it releases chemicals in your brain and you go, oh, this ultimately makes me feel good to do this. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm giving you a, a, a mass rush of serotonin to your brain to make you feel good. I'm essentially <laughs> selling you drugs that you already create in your body. So... <laughs> <laughs> Because fundamentally, again, this is about changing the narrative. Fundamentally, we don't work that way as a society. It's not about giving anymore. It's not about, you know, it's, it's, it's a liberal ideology that some people say. You're like, oh, no, you're liberal, you're bleeding heart, blah, blah, blah. You want to make people feel good. That's not consumerism. Right. And that's well, unfortunate, think, uh, you know? I think this falls part of sort of a bigger thing. I mean, two, two quick thoughts. One, I was, I don't know if you guys were following, there was this election a couple of days ago, uh, this young woman, Tiffany Cabanda, mm-hmm. does that ring a bell? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely, of course, uh, yep. Queen's DA, um, mm-hmm. and she was helped along by a whole bunch of people who had volunteered for uh, AOC. Mm-hmm. And basically, you have you know dozens of people who are volunteering almost full time or a lot of time to help her win, and that's another kind of volunteering. Mm-hmm. And you know you can think about like this amazing feeling, right, of volunteering, giving your time, and then winning for something that's really meaningful to you. And in the meantime, you know, meeting lots of awesome people, going to parties, you know, whatever. Uh, Great. I mean, like, what what could be a better volunteer experience for a young person than that kind of, you know, intense three or four months thing with a goal and then you win? I mean, it's awesome. So that was just Mm. one one thought. The second thought, um, what you were saying now earlier, was that I'm fascinated by how in this society or over the world right now, how, how do you distinguish between what is work and what is fun? Mm. For example, think of a very specific scene, right? You have these... uh, Sherpas on Mount, Mount Everest, who people basically pay to take them up to the peak. You know, the, these, these older, middle-aged uh, white people come over and pay them 60,000 bucks to basically drag them up Mount Everest, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you are seeing a photo of that, you are seeing a bunch of humans going up a peak. Now, half of those humans are paying for it, and the other half are getting paid. And there's no way they would be there without getting paid. Now, they're doing the same human activity. They're walking up a mountain. But for some of them, it's fun. And for some of them, it's work, right? And they're doing the same thing. And so one thing I've thought for a long time now is that the way that this society, that our society in in general, over the world, it's almost like the only way that you can define, because clearly, it's not the activity. They're both going up Everest. So what seems to actually make it work or fun, broadly defined, very crassly is, Work is all the things you get paid for, and fun is all the things you're willing to pay to do. I mean, that's very weird, but that's actually the only red line I can see that actually really defines it, right? So some people get up in the morning early and go running for two hours, and in some places, they'll be like, wait, that's the weirdest thing. I'm not going to run unless you pay me. But for the other person, that's fun. And so I think the volunteerism thing falls an interesting place there where we're asking people or offering people the opportunity to do something that will be and by fun, I mean gratifying, right? Satisfying. It gives you something. And then other people, though, might need to be paid to do this, right? There are all these people who go on these like school building trips to Costa Rica. Local people are getting paid to do that. And you're paying to do that, the same exact activity. And so I think there's something there about what, what are the needs of each person that makes it so that some people need to be paid to do something and they're not going to volunteer to do it. And other people would want to volunteer so badly, they're willing to actually pay for the privilege. Right. And it's the same activity, but it's satisfying two different needs. 
I also feel like that's such a fascinating thing. And I think there is so much responsibility on the part of the nonprofit to be able to craft what is essentially a funnel of fun, right? Like for the person who's volunteering their time, just to go back to like what Abby was saying with the arts, this is something I work on in my nonprofit, right? You can write a check to the arts till your day is long. And that's really useful because there's not a huge economy for like natural like capital. Please still do right Yes, that. absolutely. <laughs> but right. in the theater, something we are in desperate need of outside of commercial theater is hard skills outside of making the art because more times than not the people running the arts organization even in like management they're artists right so the value of someone from let's just say Airtable because it's my favorite tech company ever volunteering two or three hours a week to just come into a theater they love what do they make why are they your favorite Oh, it's it's just this amazing creative platform to let you build apps to manage whatever you want. It's like well, what what you'd wish Excel did in 2019, basically. I'll I'll show you sometime. It's great. Okay. <laughs> um, but do you, the value of that person spending three hours a week to build some shit that manages through Airtable and runs itself—that's an in you cannot even possibly put a price on that. So then the question is, how do you? Make that person really feel, not just understand the impact of that work that they're doing, what is piddly and what is their paid work basically for the rest of the time at Airtable. How, how do you not only show them measurable effects of their work, include them in your community, right? Because we know like in the arts, like lots of people with day jobs love to come to the theater and hang out with cool theater people. Like how do you build that funnel of fun for someone so that you don't have to convince them anymore? It just is a piece of you know, what's happening. It is fun. It is fun. But it becomes, uh, again, it becomes experiential, you know, it's it's about having that experience and selling that amount of fun, right? Yeah. It can't just be, thanks for building this boring app three hours a week. There's no way, right? That's work. I want to be paid for that. Yep. I mean, when I talk to volunteers, when they first come in, um, I often ask them, do you want to contribute your professional skills that you get paid for otherwise? Or do you want to do something totally different? Like, what do you want to get out of mm, a volunteer Love that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And then go go from there. Often people end up contributing professional skills, but some people, if they're graphic designers all day long, just don't want to be graphic designers anymore. Totally. So how can we complement that, but also tap into their expertise so that they're making a meaningful contribution I don't know. I still bristle a little bit at the idea of like needing to create a fun experience for them or selling them on things. But, the, you know, I'm kind of extreme out there. I don't want to use capitalist language on any of this. I want to mm. use like, it's and, not, I, I'm not selling them the experience. I, <laughs> I am really giving them the opportunity to run the whole Instagram feed for that project, you know, and people put in a lot of time, which also means I have to be willing to let them step aside too. Okay. That was another thing that came up. I was thinking of just when you were talking because jobs that might seem really boring to you or me or to certain people, other people completely love and totally. do, right? So for me, Every time somebody loves keeping books or paying <laughs> bills, I'm just amazed and almost apologetic when that's their job. And then when someone does it but really loves it, all I can do is like appreciate them and remember that 
they get more joy out of doing that type of Oh, 100%. Thank goodness they do. Yes. Um, But that's not, I'm not even trying to pit um, them against each other, like, oh, create a visionary versus, all these things are really important roles that it takes to make these things happen. So a few years ago, I was looking for an apartment and uh, I had this agent take me around and I hate, I hate shopping. I hate looking at apartments. I'm (laughs) an extreme boy when it comes to that stuff. No, don't. (laughs) So I told a friend about this and she, I told a friend, just, I just commented on that just a friend. And she said, Oh my God, I love seeing apartments from the inside. I will go find you an apartment. And she did. She <laughs> spent three or four days with the agent. They saw a bunch of apartments and she selected the one that I thought that she thought I would like. And she did it just for her own pleasure. She loves seeing apartments. But with the excuse, she wouldn't just pretend to be looking for one. It actually had a meaningful end point, exactly, right? Exactly. She, she couldn't she ever pretend she was looking. Yeah, she wasn't lying. She was actually looking for a place and she found it. It was great. So, yeah, <laughs> so people have gone crazy because I always want to volunteer to help people pack up their houses or unpack them when they're moving. Yep. Like I ah! love that stuff. Yeah. But people are like, no, you don't have to do that. Like once I'm unpacked, we'll go eat dinner. I'm like, no, no, no. Let me just come over and set up your kitchen for you. <laughs> That's so yeah. funny because I used to belong to a, a small startup company called TaskRabbit. Have you ever heard of it? Yes. Yeah, of I, I literally, I was doing a Broadway show at night and I would, during the day, just to alleviate some boredom and just because I want to like, I like to hone my skills. I just had my drill and like had my little, you know, toolkit. And I would go to people's houses and set up their TVs or like yep. fix things or do other stuff because I love to be handy like that. And it was something that I missed from when I was growing up. And I was like, me and my dad would go out and do stuff like that. And it always made me feel so good. And I was like, I don't care if I get paid like a buck fifty for this thing. I was the cheapest guy in TaskRabbit just because I wanted to do it. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. I was like, how do I get so many jobs? They're like, you're the cheapest person in town. <laughs> <laughs> You'll take the, but I do think so that like, gets at both the woman who found Ami his apartment and you wanting to do that is that it still is meaning. There's still a bit of meaning to it, right? So that's what I was getting at. She she could just pretend she's out there looking at apartments all the time, but that's not as much joy as doing that for a meaningful reason that she's going to help her friend out or that you're doing. You're actually helping people out. You were getting more out of helping than you were right. out of getting mm-hmm. paid. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I think it's about the fulfillment of what fulfillment is to you. Yeah. Ultimately. And and in the end, there's something for everyone. That's the thing, right? And speaking of that, which I think has to do with idealist days, we have a very special question for you guys from one of our other guests that we have been recording on the podcast. This is Michael from Zuckerberg Institute. And my question is, how has your mission evolved over time as you've built idealist? Great question. It's a good one. <laughs> uh, well, it sort of has it. It sort of has it. That's the thing. So we started DLS. I started DLS because from the day one or before day one, like years prior, I was obsessed with this idea of how do you get good people. In fact, how do you get all the good people, right? The sense that basically we are more than them, that we could actually win if we just got organized, that there's a bunch of us that want a better world. And they actually know what we mean when we say that, many of us, you know, and like, let's just do this. So I think Idealist was a way to get started. It was available. It was on the internet. It was free. Mm-hmm. I got started. I did that. The whole thing that it became known as a job site, as a career site, that was a complete accident. We said, you know, let's have a place where people can find nonprofits and, and volunteer with them or work with them. And what do nonprofits need? They need people. So mm-hmm. interns, uh, volunteers, and staff. This was before the whole online donation thing was even possible 20 years ago. So we didn't get into that. Right. And then what do they provide? They provide programs, services, material, resources. And so we created little, you, you as, a, as a nonprofit, you can come in, you can say, you know, you can come to our rape crisis center to volunteer, 
or you can come to our rape crisis centers if you need help. Like we provide this program, we need this, and then people can sort of match what they need. We're surprised that people kept coming back for the jobs. Mm-hmm. And then that sort of, you know, dovetailed with us also needing a way to survive. And so we then became known as a career side. That, that was an evolution. The idea of, of somehow um, getting good people to do more stuff together, that was always the, the behind. I mean, that was certainly always my obsession. And so we've been sort of living in these two parallel worlds now for 20 years where becoming known and becoming better and better at matching people with social good jobs while also experimenting constantly with what's the best way of actually getting people to uh, connect with each other and with their passion. And so right now we landed on this idealist day idea, this monthly day of action and groups to support that and a logo to support that and all of that. So I think we're in a pretty good place. But that's been the evolution, the original intent of getting people to somehow find each other and do good. That was mm-hmm. that was always there. And will you tell us a little more about Idealist Days, just in case someone listening doesn't know what they are? Yeah. Idealist Days basically is this idea that uh, as humans, uh, we like milestones, deadlines. We like reasons and excuses to do things, right? Mm-hmm. There's a reason why all of the marathoners go and run on the marathon and not just any other day. Like, it's the marathon. That's the day you do it. <laughs> you could do the same thing any other day, but it wouldn't be the same thing. So our theory is, uh, let's sound important without finishing high school. Our, our, our <laughs> hypothesis is that basically um, lots of people... Uh, would like to do something, say hello to a neighbor for the first time, get up at work and say, why aren't we recycling? Organize people in their church to go and build something or help the homeless. Uh, and that they are they need, or they're waiting for, they're not waiting for, but they need, or it would be helpful to them to have an excuse, a hook, a story that would make you feel, that would not make you feel crazy when you propose something. There's something, um, being you know, the first person ever that went to a school principal and said, you know, we should have a nurse in the school. We should have a psychologist in the school. Being the first person ever saying the same words as being the person that goes to the last high school that doesn't have a nurse and say, you know, we need a nurse. Same mm-hmm. words exactly, very different context. So people need, I think, reasons, excuses, ways to basically raise their hand and say, you know, all over the world next week is Idealist Day and our company could our theater could, et cetera, right? Uh, when you guys, when, when the theater community does the um, the the AIDS thing, where people say, what, what's the thing called when they get up at the end of the show? Broadway and cares, equity fights AIDS, yeah. Exactly. There's something magical about the whole way it's done, right? Which is that we all do it and we all do it now. Yeah. And we all do it for the same thing. So that time of the year, when you go to see a play, wherever you go, you expect the same thing to happen. And as humans, that's, that's hugely helpful to us. Whereas a random actor on a random day on a random play asking you money for a random cause, that, that wouldn't work. And so Idealist Days are basically monthly days of action. They happen on the date of the month that is the so six six seven seven eight eight nine nine. I think both Abby and I haven't figured out the exact sequence of words to explain that. Yeah. The date of the, the day of the month that is anyway. <laughs> it's easier to just say it happens on seven seven eight eight nine nine. It works all over the world. It's extremely memorable, we have found. Many issues, organizations have like an annual day of something. We're not going to change the world once a year. Mm. And weekly feels too much, so monthly feels right. And it's been working well. And it can be whatever you want. One of the things we've done is liberally define it with the lowest possible bar. So we're (laughs) trying to get to a place where no one has an excuse to say, I didn't have time. If you say, look, Ideals Day, it counts. What you do that day is take 30 seconds to think about what you will do in the next idealist day. Great. That counts too. Don't tell me you don't have time. You can find 30 seconds. You can. I guarantee it. And what we have found, which I think has been really, I think, gratifying, is people have surprised us with how they have used it. So 
we expected people to, you know, say hello to a neighbor, pick up some trash from the highway, etc. It was surprising, for example, to have someone say, you know, I've been wanting to stop drinking for 20 years. I stopped drinking on Idealist Day. Oh, wow. I was like, wow, that was not something we imagined. And you might as well use it for that, too. Why not? Yeah. I love that idea. It's a, it's kind of a day, and to oversimplify it, it's a day of accountability. You can stop drinking too. Yeah, you know, you, you can do. <laughs> I know. I can. <laughs> I won't, but I can. <laughs> but it is it is ultimately a day of accountability, you know. And I and I really I appreciate I mean, the idea. It's, exactly. It's it's a self fulfillment thing. Again, it's like volunteering for yourself. Well, it's an excuse, and I think I think that institutions also could, you know, so for example, all of us complain all the time about how the media doesn't cover good stuff, right? So imagine if we gave the media, you know, radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, once a month, do a story about someone doing something good where you are. Mm-hmm. Don't, you know, well, what, well, it's Idealist Day. Once a month, we have at least one story in the paper because it's Idealist Day, right? Given that institutional excuse, um, you know, your museum could stay open all night. The mayor could encourage the whole city to do X. And even, you know, crazy thoughts that somebody can easily shoot down, but to say, you know, we all don't love the fact that many of the, of the subway stations in the city are dirty. The, the, you know, the inside is dirty. Great. Once a month or once a year, the mayor, ter- I mean, let's turn off the power on a Sunday across the whole city for two hours and we'll all jump into our station and clean it up. We'll all do it together. And, the, and, the, and you know, whatever. You, once you decide and when you see things sort of vertically, you say on a certain day, we can all do X. Suddenly you have excuses. You remember, when was it that, was it after the election that there was that subway station that was full of post-it notes? Union Square. Yeah. Yeah. That was was like a a sort of coincidence, right? It was people improvised. But what if once a month you ask people to put post-it notes on their subway station saying what they wish for in the world? Or kids can dream up, you know, kids can draw in school what they'll their view of a better New York or a better world. And then the, the, the city once a month will let them hang it on the subway uh, station walls for a day, and we have an exhibit of kids' art just one day. So to go to the mayor or to go to the MTA and ask for permission for that just randomly, they'll say no. But if it's in the context of, mm. you know, it's a dealer's day, you know, it is, it is take your daughter to work day. So can we please, you know, bring our daughters? Because it is take your daughter to work day. And I didn't come up with this. It's happening all over the world. So that I think is just helpful to people. My favorite thing about that functionally is that what you're talking about is like what coaches teach for forming. It's just foundational habits forming, right? Do one small thing on a consistent basis and don't worry about the rest of it. And all of a sudden you're going to end up with a habit like down the road and it'll get bigger and better. But just it's that one small thing on a consistent basis. That's all it is. Again, it's back to that like thing about structure in your daily life. Create a habit, stick to that habit, and it becomes relentless. I was also going to just say the, um, the what's the next small step you can take. So if you're stuck and all you can do is 30 seconds to think about what your next step is, and then the next month you actually do that next step. So what are the small bites? Because it can seem like a really big goal to save the world, or it can seem like a really big goal to start a nonprofit organization. But maybe the next step is just to talk to somebody. So you're going to go have lunch with them on Idealist Day, or you're going to look up the paperwork of what would it take that you need to do, or you're going to make your one pager about it. Like how can we take off little bites and use that as an excuse of the day, the handle to kind to hold on to and make it happen. Um, the yeah. one other thing I was thinking, when, just to add on to Ami's talking about it as an excuse, 
I think that the reason we need is an excuse is because if we don't have one, then we're just a crazy person who wants to change the world. Or we're just a crazy person who wants to talk to their neighbor, or just a crazy person who's trying to learn the name of the garbage man, or the crazy person who wants to start an organization. So it's like, no, I'm not a crazy person. Like we're all we're all doing this. I'm part of this whole mass of people around the world who are doing crazy things, but it's not crazy because it's idealist day. Yeah, and I know because we sort of start to round the conversation up. Uh, Idealist Day is a thing that anyone anywhere in the world can get involved with. It's organized. There are groups. So if you're if someone's listening to the podcast, what do they do? They go to idealistdays.org uh, or idealistdays.org. All the combos work. But idealistdays.org and they'll find information about it. They'll find examples. They'll find photos of people who have done stuff. Uh, they'll find a directory to list what they're going to do and then see what other people are going to do. Soon, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a map of the world where you'll be able to pin your activity and say, I'm going to do X. And you'll see all other people's pins over the world coming up. So yeah, go to dealersdays.org and take it from there. You guys are amazing right. and so thank inspiring. You. And thank you. You Thanks guys for are me. as well. It's fun having coffee with you. Uh, can we just talk about for a second? Um, Dar, genius. Abby also, too. Abby, oh my God. Like both of them I can't, together were just so brilliant. I can't stop thinking about the... <laughs> It's like blowing my fucking mind, that idea of like saying the same action perceived two different ways being the difference between work and fun. And I feel like that uh, concept came up in different ways a lot of times in that conversation. I'm just like, absolutely. absolutely. uh, (laughs) And, And thus, and then like paralleling that to volunteering in a way that like, how do we, how do we decipher volunteering you know what i mean giving my time versus getting paid for my time having fun versus working you know yeah what do you do you volunteer for you do right i do yeah yeah yeah. i volunteer a lot of soup kitchens uh, especially when i'm in new york i haven't really done it a lot here but i do go to the mercy home here in chicago Mm -hmm. and i've done you know going there and just even just spending time with those kids and they're so brilliant like we don't i don't just don't feel like we give kids enough credit you know you see them especially in like a mercy home or someplace that's like an after school center or something like that for low-income children not even that but like just schools in general right you don't give them enough credit. You think like, oh, guys, poor kids, blah, blah, blah. And you feel that it's like a sad story. But you go in there and you have conversation with these kids. They're genius. Yeah. Kids are so smart. They're so resilient. They're so smart. <laughs> we're, the like, <laughs> we're the problem. We're the problem. I'm being, I'm so true. It's like there's so much aspersion and judgment passed down from like the older generations. It's like, ah, oh, kids don't know shit these days. You know, things <laughs> like that. But when in essence, you're like, these kids are smart and nobody's listening to them. You know, so like the volunteering, I think that's an absolutely mandatory thing that we should all do as adults to go in and understand what the next generation is, what their worries are, what their thoughts are and how they deal with problems, because we could learn from that. Absolutely. And if you don't know where to start, an easy way to do it is to go to idealistdays.org and see who's around you that's organized an event. And I am in the Idealist group on Facebook. uh, And sometimes I'll see everybody post their events. Sometimes it's like a community garden cleanup. Sometimes here in New York, like people just meet on the steps of the New York Public Library, like cool people just to like meet your neighbors and say hello. There's all kinds of opportunities. And it's the easiest, most simple way to just do something and make a difference. So go to idealistdays.org and see what's going on in your neighborhood. Another really, really good episode of Take Me to Coffee Down with Ami Dar, the founder of idealist.org, and Abby Subek-Graf, who is their director of organizing. One, check out new episodes every Thursday on your favorite podcasting thingy, blah, 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 blah. 
dose, there's a special bonus content over at Patreon. Uh, and if you want to see doubles of Ami, because we had two videos for a while, it's really cuckoo. So go over to patreon.com slash TM2C podcast and uh, join our coffee club. And your contribution helps us continue to make this podcast for you, with you, and completely ad-free. No one tells us what to do. Unless they're a really delicious coffee company that wants to sponsor, mm. then we might make a concession. <laughs> Three, download these episodes, leave us a review, help us out, and uh, we'll keep making great episodes for you. I'm Jess. I'm Andrew. We'll see you next week. Bye. Two walk like two out the door, then you have magic.